Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, and we're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. Now, I'd like to remind you just exactly what public education means, because at the moment, uh, there, I think it's there, there's considerable confusion. Public education means education that's public in purpose and outcome. It should also be public in access. That's actually open to everyone. It doesn't matter at all what their religious or their sexual preference may be and that of the parents. The children should not suffer for the sins of the parents, we believe. The children of our nation should be given the opportunity, the very, very best opportunity for the highest possible education that they can get at taxpayers' expense. And for that reason, our public schools should be owned by the public and they should be controlled by the public because they are the only ones that can be accountable. Now, private schools that are in a public system, as you have in the UK and also in New Zealand, are not public. Private can never be public unless all of the indicia which I've just uh, listed are fulfilled. And a lot of people at the moment in Australia are thinking, well, is it possible to compromise? We are in such a terrible mess with our public system, $19 billion underfunded, and our private system, $1 billion, that's public money, overfunded. There is something wrong. Now, the dogs have been around for a long time, and I'd just like to tell you that you can't compromise with some of the churches, particularly the Catholic Church. You just can't do it. As soon as you give them even an inch, they will take a mile, and that's been proved. And they know how to do it too, and they know how to pay public politics. But um, I just thought I'd give you that little spin. Now, we've got, as always this afternoon, a press release for you. It's number 977, and it's entitled... It's the tax system, stupid. Now, people are always telling us that it's the economy, stupid, when it comes to elections and what have you. But when it comes to considering education and elections and what is actually happening to our societies as it becomes more unequal and more class conscious because of the education system, we believe that the tax system and education are very, very much entwined. So this is what our press release is about, and uh, we are going to read this to you. Uh, we are very fortunate that in the last week or so, people have also put this together. Trevor Cobalt, that brilliant man from Save Our Schools, uh, has linked the two things together. And Richard Dennis from the Australian Institute has been on the ABC, and we'll play that for you later, uh, and he has also been linking the inequalities in Australian uh, society and education with the tax system. So here you are. Here is press release 977. Thanks, Jean. It's the tax system, stupid. In spite of all the claims of independence in the private education system, the education of Australian children is more and more dependent upon taxpayer funding. But the inequality per perpetrated 
perpetuated by state aid to private schools is exacerbated by both the economic and tax system itself. According to Richard Dennis, a researcher in the Australia in the Australia Institute, inequality has been on steroids in Australia over the past decade, uh, with new data revealing the bottom 90% of Australians receive just 7% of economic growth per person since 2009, while the top 10% of income earners reap 93% of the benefits. The data shows a radical reversal on the long-term trend from the period between 1950 to 2009 in Australia. Australia is now a global outlier in the maldistribution of gains from economic growth, falling behind the EU, US, UK, China and Canada. This research will increase pressure on the government to reconsider the stage three tax cuts before the next election, which mostly benefit the top 10% of income earners. While everyone knows inequality has been, been rising in Australia, our recent report, uh, this is a report from the Australia Institute, uh, our recent report, Inequality on Steroids, revealed some alarming figures that shocked even me. This is Richard Dennis speaking. Uh, since 2009, 93% of our economic growth has flowed to the top 10% of income earners. I was always suspicious about the claims the benefit of economic growth would trickle down. But what our paper shows is that the benefits of growth are being hoovered up. Rising inequality doesn't just happen. It reflects the full range of choices we, as a nation, have made. We chose to suppress unemployment benefits, the minimum wage and public sector wages. And we chose to cut taxes for high incomes, tax capital gains in half the rate we tax wage income, and to spend $50 billion per year on tax concessions for superannuation. Causing inequality is not cheap. With the federal budget approaching, Australia, the Australia Institute will be releasing even more research to highlight the enormous cost and even greater inequity of Scott Morrison's legacy stage three tax cuts. These tax cuts, which were dreamed up before COVID, before our soaring energy prices and before the biggest ever fall in real wages, are due to kick in in July next year six years after they were first announced. While the total cost of tax three, uh, stage three tax cuts make even the cost of AUKUS look cheap, the conservative voices that drone endlessly about the need for fiscal responsibility remain strategically silent. I can assure you that, that here at the Australian Institute, we won't tire of reminding people that over the next 10 years, about half of the $254 billion cost of the stage three tax cuts will flow to those earning over $180,000 per year. While enormous increases in equality occurred during the previous government and the stage three tax cuts were legislated by the previous federal government, it is up to the current government to decide whether it wants to reverse this trend or continue to drive our economy and society in the direction left by the coalition. Slashing tax concessions for super ditching subsidies for fossil fuels and abandoning or amending the stage three tax cuts can all make a huge difference to our economy and society or not. 
democracy is about choices. And while our research highlights the benefits of choosing progressive tax reform, there is nothing inevitable about those choices being made. We here at the Australia Institute will be doing our bit to highlight the benefits of genuine tax reform. Hopefully you can help amplify it by sharing the research with your friends or chipping in to help support the research program. The mushrooming of the private education sector and its favourable treatment through both direct, direct taxation grants and taxation exemptions has paralleled this development of a top-heavy plutocratic Australian society. Trevor Cobold, in his analysis of the tax system, illustrates how this has occurred. So this is from Trevor Cobold now. Uh, he's, he writes, a golden age of tax concessions for the rich. New data released by the Australian Treasury in February shows it's a golden age of tax income concessions for the rich. Tax concessions for the wealthy in Australia are at unprecedented levels. They benefited nearly $40 billion from seven major tax concessions in 2019 to 2020. The avarice of the rich is robbing disadvantaged schools and other public services of much-needed revenue. It has huge social and economic costs. The latest tax expenditure statement, now called Tax Expenditures and Insights Statement, show that the top 10% of taxable income earners received $39.1 billion from just seven forms of tax concessions. The total revenue foregone from these seven tax concessions in 2019 to 2020 was $84.4 billion, and 46% of this went to the top 10% income earners. And you can go to the Save Our Schools website and look at this uh, article by Trevor Cobalt. He's got a chart there that's quite interesting that explains the tax expenditure, the revenue that's been foregone, and the share that the top 10% received. And the disparity uh, is incredible. The figures ignore tax avoidance through family trust. High income earners can also reduce taxation through family trusts. Trust earnings can be allocated to family members who have low income other than sources so that the taxable income attracts the lowest rate of tax possible. For example, a high proportion of the trust income can be allocated to adult family members who work part-time so as to take advantage of the tax-free threshold applying to them. In some circumstances, it's possible to reduce the tax bill to almost zero. The Treasury does not estimate the tax revenue lost through this rort. However, it does show that about 22% of those who receive trust distributions are in the top income decile and they accounted for about 60% of all income received from trusts by individuals. This amounted to about $31.2 billion. Estimates of the loss to tax revenues are hard to come by. However, a few years ago at the University of New South Wales tax at the University of New South Wales, tax law export expert Dale Bocabella estimated that tax avoidance through family trusts is reducing government taxation revenue at about at at least two billion dollars a year. At the time he said this was a conservative estimate. The rich also get rewarded with tax concessions to employ armies of lawyers, financial consultants and accountants to arrange their tax affairs to avoid tax. 
the costs of this wealth defence industry can be claimed as a tax deduction. The tax expenditures and insights statement show that the top 10% of income earners receive a tax concession amounting to nearly $658 million in 2019 to 2020. The cost of these tax concessions is borne by the rest of the community. It siphons off revenue that would be better used to fund schools, TAFE and universities, as well as other services such as healthcare, mental health, public housing, unemployment benefits, and so on. As the economists Emmanuel Sires and Gabriel Zuckman have observed, tax avoidance is the triumph of injustice. The stage three tax cuts for the rich will rob even more funding from services for low-income families. According to estimates by the Parliamentary Budget Office, the stage three tax cuts will cost $243 billion over eight years from 2024 to 2025 to 2032-2033. The top 20% of income earners would receive a tax cut of $188 billion, nearly 80% of the total benefit of the tax cuts. Those with taxable income of $180,000 or more would get $118 billion. The top 1% of income earners with taxable incomes over $309,000 in 2021-22 will get a tax cut worth $11.8 billion. This massive windfall for the richest people in Australia will exacerbate inequality and deny much-needed funding for key services such as public education, healthcare, aged care and the NDIS. To compound the injustice, the richest families in Australia also benefit from over $1 billion a year in government funding for the elite private schools they send their kids to. Figures published on MySchool show that 126 of the richest schools in Australia received $1.25 billion in government funding since 2020. Not only do the wealthy avoid paying tax, but they get huge subsidies out of the taxes paid by the rest of the community. The sheer scale of the avarice is gobsmacking. These schools have a massive resource advantage over public schools, yet public schools, which enrol over 80% of low socioeconomic, indigenous, remote area and disability students, are massively underfunded. They are underfunded by nearly $7 billion this year alone. It is it's a disgraceful injustice and an inexcusable waste that elite private schools catering for the wealthy should continue to receive government funding while disadvantaged pub public and private schools are denied adequate funding and face severe shortages of teaching staff and education materials. Yet the avarice of the wealthy and their tax concessions goes unchallenged by governments while the rest of the community, especially disadvantaged families, suffers from inadequate services. As the US Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said over 100 years ago, taxes are what we pay for civilised society. It's time the rich in Australia fulfilled their obligation to support a better society. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much for that. 
that's our press release 977, which you can find at www.adogs.info, the dogs website. And uh, we'll have a little bit of break now, and then we'll come back to hear Richard Dennis himself on the ABC. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Well, this is the Dogs Program, and we hope that you're still with us. And to underline what you've just been listening to, it's the tax system stupid. Uh, we've got an excerpt from an ABC program in the last week uh, with Richard Dennis uh, talking about his ideas himself. The excerpt you're going to hear now is from the ABC News interview that Joe O'Brien did with Richard Dennis. If you'd like to find out more about it or have a look at the charts that they're referring to, you can find the video of it on YouTube. Just type in what happened to the fair go in Australia, Richard Dennis. That's D-E-N-N-I-S-S. And uh, firstly, you can hear Joe O'Brien, the news presenter, talking to Richard Dennis, and then they discuss the charts. But uh, then they go into the further inequities that are inherent in the Australian political and economic landscape at the moment. So if you'd like to have a closer look at these charts that they're talking about, go to YouTube and type in what happened to the fair go in Australia. Now let's hear the audio. So inequality has become substantially worse in Australia over the last decade with the rich getting richer and lower income earners not getting a fair share of the growth, according to the Australia Institute. It's released new research today describing inequality as being on steroids at the moment. We're about to interview the Executive Director of the Australia Institute, Richard Dennis, but before we do, we'll go to a graph from the research to put this in some context. So this sets out what's happened with the share of growth going to the rich and poor over the last five decades. The blue bars are the top 10% of income earners and the mustard bars are the bottom 90% of income earners. So in those last two bars you can see there on this graph, that's for the decade 2009 to 19, you can see the conclusion of the Australia Institute is that 93% of the proceeds of growth over that decade went to the top 10%, while only 7% of the proceeds of that growth went to the bottom 90% of income earners. Richard Dennis joins us now to chat through his research. Uh, Richard Dennis, welcome. So there are some pretty wild fluctuations from decade to decade with this, particularly in that last transition. Naturally, that might raise questions for some people about the integrity of this methodology. You obviously have faith in it because you've published this. Just explain for us how you've done this. Uh, Look, the data comes from a large international data set put together by the famous economist Thomas Piketty, uh, who who famously wrote a book about uh, wealth last uh, last decade. So the the data set is international. Uh, All we've done is is chop it up into decades uh, and and really highlight this uh, incredible transformation that we've seen, uh, and that is that we're often told we just need to grow the pie, we just need to grow the cake, if only there was more, we could all have more. What that graph shows is that in the decade to 2019, 93% of the of the of the expansion in the cake, 93% of the benefits of economic growth 
went to just 10%, the, the wealthiest 10% of the population. Now, that, that is a shocking number. We were surprised to see it. But, of course, we know that the minimum wage is growing far slower than the wages of CEOs. We know that unemployment benefits have grown far more slowly than the incomes of average or high-income Australians. Uh, so we, we know that all at an individual level that inequality has been growing. All this data does is, is show, well, you know, if we look at it top down, if we look at the big picture, who, who, got, this, who got the bigger cake? Uh, and unfortunately for low-income earners, uh, they didn't get much. That's why the cost of living crisis is biting so hard. And how do you measure how the proceeds of growth have filtered through to the different income groups? Oh well, that's that's literally the data that comes from Thomas Piketty. The uh, the around the world countries have have the same issues, and uh, as you can see, Australia hasn't always uh, had this problem. And indeed, as we do in the paper, we look at other countries, and we see in other countries uh, the benefits of growth are far more evenly spread. The way we collect the data hasn't changed. The data's collected across multiple countries. Australia just had this unique decade. And uh, again, think about, we, we're told again and again, why did the economy do so well? Well, the mining boom. Okay, well, most people don't work in the mining industry. Most people don't own a mining company. So we shouldn't be surprised that most people didn't get much out of that boom. We've been told the benefits would trickle down. Um, all this data shows is it didn't happen, that the, the vast majority of the income uh, went to people who were directly benefiting from that. Uh, similarly, you know, the property boom was great for people who owned six properties, didn't deliver much for people who owned no properties. So we, we know all these things were happening. All this data does is is to bring it together at the economy-wide level. Yeah, and so you've just touched on this. That was my next next question. What drove this massive trend change in the transition from the 2000s into 2010? Well, I do think that the mining boom played a big part of that. We, you know, we know that fortunes were made by people like Gina Reinhardt. Uh, obviously, that fortune was was hers. It wasn't spread out uh, in 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 countries like Norway when the price of oil and gas has surged. The Norwegian government collects a lot of tax and spreads the benefits out. In Australia, we we don't have. Uh, a resources tax like that. We don't have the kind of systems that other countries have that, that, that take the benefits of a resources boom and spread them out. Uh, so, yeah, so we've seen a property boom that, and, and remember this data only goes up to 2019, so we had a, a roaring property boom. We, we had a mining boom. Uh, we've seen CEO pay. We've seen the, the tech industry delivering enormous, uh, enormous incomes and enormous uh, share price increases for some people. But again, we, we know that the minimum wage wasn't growing. We know that unemployment benefits weren't growing. We we know that, you know, during COVID, uh, we were chasing people for, for robo-debts, but we were exempting uh, people that were overpaid on JobKeeper. So the, the consequence of all of these choices uh, have caused this problem. And these graphs split the two income categories into top 10% and the rest. Can you give us an idea of what the cutoff line is? Is it like people earning over $200,000 a year or something like that? Uh, no, so so the, the data is all put together uh, in uh, in an internationally consistent way. Yeah. So it's put together uh, using uh, using euros, not 
Australian dollars, but to give you a sense of it, people earning over $120,000 uh, would be in that top 10% and people earning $40,000. So people working full-time on the minimum wage in Australia are only earning uh, around $40,000. Uh, they're, they're obviously missing out. So, no, we're not talking about people just on 200000 The top The top 10% would kick in uh, around $100,000, $120,000 a year. But while it's not polite to say it, in Australia, $100,000 a year is a lot of money. There are people who work full-time as a cleaner who earn $40,000 a year. $100,000 is, 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 is two and a half times that. Uh, but in Australia, we've, we've kind of convinced ourselves that if you're not earning a quarter of a million dollars a year, you're not rich. Well, there's no economic definition of rich, uh, but we, we do know that the, the minimum wage in Australia is, is very, very low. And of course, the unemployment benefits far lower still. And so how does this feed into the Labor government's plans for the reform? Or how does this research reflect on the Labor government's plans for reform? Right. Well, all this data describes what happened uh, between uh, up till 2019. So obviously that was the previous government. Uh, unfortunately, what's happened in the last couple of years wasn't expected, wasn't anticipated. But what's happened is we've seen real wages falling. We've got high inflation. We've got real wages falling. Uh, and that's that's and, and of course we've got rapidly rising energy prices, particularly electricity. So all of these things have loaded up cost of living pressures on on particularly low income earners. Uh, none of this is the current government's fault, but on their watch, what we're going to see next year is the stage three tax cuts come in, and the stage three tax cuts will deliver around ten thousand dollars a year to people earning over $200,000 and literally nothing, not a cent of the stage three tax cuts goes to people uh, earning less than uh, working on the minimum wage, for example. So, you know, unfortunately, we've had a decade in which inequality's risen very rapidly and we've already legislated these stage three tax cuts. They were, they were Scott Morrison's tax cuts, but, but, but Labor voted for them and, and committed to keeping them. But it's unavoidable the, the consequences of the stage three tax cuts are going to make that that decade of inequality even worse. So some people might like, like to think Australia is a, is a land of equality and everyone gets a fair go. What does this research show about Australia's position in the world when it comes to equality? Oh, look, of course, Australians are feel to, free to feel anything they want. What the data says is that Australia is not a particularly even uh, equitable country when it comes to distribution of income. Uh, the Nordic countries, you know, Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, uh, these countries have far less extremes uh, than Australia. And what was really striking from our research is that while the, the decade to 2019 saw an enormous share of economic growth go to the top 10%, uh, we, we led the world in that. Um, uh, while in inequality is rising in other countries, it's not rising as fast as it is in Australia. So uh, it's not too late, of course. There's, there's nothing to stop us from tweaking the stage three tax cuts. There's nothing to stop us uh, from boosting unemployment benefits or the minimum wage. These are democratic choices. They're not economic choices. They're democratic choices. Other countries have made choices to keep... Uh, to, to risk inequality. Other countries have made choices to, to make the gap between what a teacher earns and a, and a, and a banker earns lower. 
in Australia, we've 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 hoped that trickle down would would help, and what this data shows is. Uh, trickle down economics was certainly good for the people who who were who were riding that mining boom and property boom, but not not so good for people working working on the minimum wage. Okay, Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute. Thanks so much for talking us through that research. Well, that was uh, Richard Dennis himself uh, explaining his ideas and all of the extraordinary research that he's done on the tax system and how it relates to the inequalities in our society, which are, of course, underlined by our public school system being underfunded and the private school system, not only through direct grants but through exemptions and through the tax system, being always given the priority by the elites of our society. We'll have another little bit of a break and uh, we'll come back with a a rather amusing uh, tale from Sydney. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. What's in a haircut? Well... There's a very, it's a fun article, I think, in the Sydney Morning Herald. Waverley College is a very, very wealthy school in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Waverley College has put the kibosh on haircuts. The boys at this college, the elite of the next generation, are not allowed to have mullets or any other strange haircut. Now, this is extraordinary. Just think about what it means. Sometimes a teenager's way of expressing themselves is the way they look. In fact, the way a child looks is very important to them as they're growing up. This school wants to control the haircuts of the boys. And not only that, they are employing, they have enough money to employ their own hairdresser. Just think about it. What does this really mean? What, what kind of people do this? I would say you're dealing with control freaks. And these are the people who see themselves as the elite of our community who want to control the rest of us. Let's hear a bit more about this war on mullets. Thanks, Jean. So this article is written by Christopher Harris, originally published in the Sydney Morning Herald, and it is entitled Private Schools War on Mullets, $20 Haircut on Arrival or Get Sent Home. A Sydney private school's long-running war on mullets is set for another flashpoint when class begins next term after it warned parents that children with non-compliant cuts would have their hair trimmed on site. Waverley College last week said students with mohawks, mullets, dreadlocks, buns or braids would be billed $20 and sent to the hairdresser stationed on site for their first day of school. If they didn't like it, they would be sent home. If your son arrives at the college at the commencement of term two with a haircut that is not in line with college policy, he will either be sent home on his first day or he will have a hairdresser on site where he can receive a haircut at the cost of $20 charged to his school fees account, Deputy Principal Gabby Smith told parents. Your son will be given a choice on this day and a note will be logged on his file. There will be no phone calls home. 
Offending styles subject to the policy also include undercuts, dramatic layering, tracks, shapes cut into the hair, overuse of product, tinting, colouring, strands of hair, braids or lines. The hardline stance on haircuts is the latest flashpoint in a long-running battle to get students to comply with its school policy. In 2021, the $22,555 a year school attracted controversy when it told students the mullet was banned. Haircuts in private schools are no trivial matter. In 2018, the principal of the High Fee Private School Trinity Grammar in Melbourne resigned after months of controversy that erupted when a deputy principal was sacked after he gave a student's hair a trim ahead of a school photo. Smith told the Herald that the school rules were clear and parents supported the school's position. Part of maturing in life is understanding that rules, guidelines and expectations are necessary for growth, even when these might not align with our personal preferences. While personal expression, fun and creativity are important parts of who we are as individuals, it needs to fit within the bounds of what is acceptable and what is required of us, she said. Waverley College's uniform policy includes presentation standards such as appropriate hairstyles and just as many workplaces have expectations of presentation. We expect our students to adhere to a dress code that includes neat hair. Andre Munoz, the owner of St. Barbershop in nearby Kuji, said there was more nuance to the mullet debate. I don't think mullets should be banned, he said. If you have one, it should be maintained and well-groomed as it was with any other cut. Some very interesting opinions on haircuts up there in New South Wales. Back over to you, Jean. Well, we hope you uh, found that an interesting article. But, of course, public schools don't require that kind of control over their children, and um, nor do they require uh, children to have the right um, sexual preference. Uh, Scotch College, apparently, down here in Melbourne, uh, says that a boy who is uh, gay can't be the school captain. So that's uh, that was also in the press this week. But the AEU have a joint statement on equal access because public schools stand for equal access for children teachers and all employees. There is no discrimination. Private schools are all about discrimination. And that is the very, very basic bottom line of the difference. Private can never be public for that reason. This is a statement from the AEU, along with 79 individuals and organisations, uh, to call on the Australian government to adopt an equal access costs model for all discrimination matters so that people who experience discrimination and sexual harassment can recover their legal costs if successful. So the joint statement goes thus. Time for equal access in discrimination claims. We all deserve to be safe at work and free from discrimination and sexual harassment. While sexual harassment is pervasive across all industries and all employment levels in Australia, it is not inevitable. The Australian government has the power to prevent discrimination and sexual harassment by adopting an equal access costs model to ensure that people who are harmed can access justice and achieve fair outcomes. 
the major barrier to justice for people who've experienced discrimination and sexual harassment is the risk of having to pay the legal costs of the perpetrator or the perpetrator's employer, employer should they lose. Equally, they must be able to recover their own legal, legal costs if they win to ensure that they're not left out of pocket and that legal representation is fi financially viable and accessible. These risks stop people from pursuing their rights. This is especially true for diverse and disproportionately affected communities, for people who are low paid and in insecure work, and when people are up against an organisation with large resources, such as many employers. The, re the rules for awarding costs in discrimination matters have a significant impact on access to justice as legal costs can be hundreds of thousands of dollars and many people do not bring claims for fear that they could have to pay the other side's legal costs if they lose. This means people do not enforce their rights and claims are rarely aired in court. This allows discrimination and sexual harassment to flourish. The Power to Prevent Coalition is a group of more than 60 diverse community organisations, unions, academics, peak bodies, health professionals, lawyers and victim survivors. We see the effects of discrimination and sexual harassment on people every day. Our recommendations to improve the law are based on this direct experience. This is why we're calling on the Australian government to adopt an equal access cost model for all discrimination matters. This would allow people who experience discrimination and sexual harassment to recover their legal costs if successful. If unsuccessful, they would not be required to pay the other side's costs, with some limited exceptions, such as for vexatious litigation. This model is similar to uh, costs protections already available in whistleblowing law. Adopting this model would mean that people do not face a lifetime of debt simply for enforcing their rights. Equal access means People who experience the highest rate of discrimination and sexual harassment are supported to come forward without the risk of becoming bankrupt or having a huge debt simply for enforcing their rights. People who have experienced discrimination and sexual harassment can access legal representation. There will likely be more case law that sends the message that this behaviour is unacceptable and will allow damages awards to better reflect community standards. We can ensure the new protections in the Sex Discrimination Act are upheld to better eliminate and prevent gender-based discrimination. We can prevent and eliminate sexual harassment and discrimination, but to do this, we must remove barriers to accessing justice and support people who experience discrimination and sexual harassment to take action. It's time for Australia to adopt equal access for discrimination claims. And that was from the AEU, along with 79 other individuals and organisations. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, thank you for that. It is very important continually to remind ourselves that that is the baseline of public education. There's no discrimination against children. Children have a right to education. Education is not a charity. So Dale and Jeff are going to take us overseas to find out about what's happening 
Oh, thanks, Gene. And of course, we're over to our wonderful blog that comes from the United States from by Dana Ravitch. DeSantis and his morality police in schools. Uh, this is from the 15th of April. The editorial board of the Miami Herald knows exactly what Rhonda Fascist is up to. That's her, her saying, not mine. He wants to remove local control of public schools and gather complete power over what is taught in the schools. He wants to crush unions. He wants to censor books in school libraries. He wants to make sure that students use the bathroom assigned to the gender of their birth certificate. He wants to control the pronouns that teachers use in their classroom. Check every student's birth certificate so you don't break the last two laws. He wants to control the state curriculum and tests to, to be certain that only patriotic history is taught. It's not at all clear whether black history can be taught, even though it is mandated, unless it meets his approval. He wants to control school boards, and he doesn't hesitate to select and endorse candidates who share his views. He is power mad. And he thinks his authoritarian behaviour is a model for the nation. He must have skipped history at Harvard. It's the biggest irony of a state that it calls itself free. A basic tenet of America's political system, one that conservatives more than liberals have staunchly defended, is that the government, is, the government closest to the people is best. But the Florida legislature, egged on by Governor DeSantis, is poised to further constrain locally elected school boards from making decisions about books, what teachers can say in the classroom, and even school bathroom rules. If the Republican-led House and Senate get their way, by the time they are done, local education will be, will be a mere arm of state leaders who act like the ideological patrol of Florida's K-12 system. Meanwhile, there's not enough talk about real issues like post-pandemic learning losses and the shortage of teachers. In fact, Lawmakers might make the latter even worse with a union-busting bill that could decertify many teacher unions in charge of negotiating salaries and working conditions. So strong is the legislature's desire to turn K-12 into a field of culture battles, they are seeking to turn school board races, which are currently non-partisan, into partisan contests. This would play right into DeSantis's hands. He said that his goal is to elect candidates of his choosing in 2024 local races, including for the Miami-Dade uh, County School Board. This move would exclude millions of Floridans who aren't registered with either major party and who outnumber Republican voters in Miami-Dade from voting for their board members in primaries. The saving grace is that this measure would only go into effect if at least 60% of voters in the state approve it is an amendment to the Florida Constitution. Another bill would relax residency requirements for school board candidates. They would not have to live in the district they want to represent until taking office. This isn't unheard of in Florida. The same requirement applies to sheriffs and other constitutional officers. But it would allow any outsider with money and backing from, say, a powerful governor to run and represent communities they have no connection to. To be fair, there are some sound proposals making their way forward at the Capitol. Lawmakers want shorter eight-year term limits for school board members, down from 12 years. There's a bill to require instruction on the effects of social media on young people and to ban the use of a school's internet for social media, unless it's for education purposes. Senate Bill 52 is ready for a Senate vote and also would ban cell phones in class, but lawmakers are too busy fighting gender pronouns, sex education and transgender youth. 
SB 1674 would make it a second degree misdemeanor for adults to use a bathroom or changing facility that doesn't align with their sex assigned at birth. The bill also would require districts to come up with disciplinary procedures to deal with students who violate the ban, further stigmatising trans kids who are often the target of ridicule. Republican lawmakers want to prohibit teachers and staff from calling students by pronouns that differ from those given to them at birth, even when a parent is okay with it. SB 1320 expands a law that bans instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity known by critics as don't say gay through the eighth grade. That same bill would also give outsized power to a single person to at least temporarily ban books from schools. District would be required to pull books that haven't been challenged while a complaint is being heard. It allows not just parents, but any country resident to file an objection, likely resulting in blanket attempts by activists to ban books about LGBTQIA issues and race. SB 1320 would also take away the school board's power to choose textbooks for sexual and reproductive health classes. Instead, that would be up to the Department of Education, which reports to the governor. Current law already requires districts to teach that abstinence is the certain way to prevent pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases uh, and about the benefits of monogamous heterosexual marriage. But lawmakers seem to think we still cannot trust the people we elected to run our schools with basic decisions about curriculum. We're not fools. This isn't simply a traditional power grab by Tallahassee. This is an attempt to assure, ensure only certain voices are allowed in public education. Parents and educators who think differently be damned. And now over to the UK, the Guardian gives its view on the US book bans and the fact that it's time to fight back. Censorship is surging thanks to an organised right-wing minority targeting books on LGBTQ and black characters and issues. A book is a loaded gun in the house next door, warns a character in Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury's dystopian vision of an America where books are considered so dangerous they must be incinerated. The novel appeared 70 years ago in the aftermath of Nazi book burnings and, the, and amid the McCarthyism and Soviet ideological repression. But the urge to ban books has resurged with a vengeance, with the American Library Association, ALA, recording a doubling of censorship attempts in 2022 to 1,269 across 32 states, the highest rate for decades. PEN America, which, is, which champions the freedom of expression, tallied more than 2,500 cases in the last school year. These attempts are not merely more numerous, but are also broadening and deepening. The decisions of school boards and districts take place in the context of politicians grasping electoral advantage and punitive, yet often vaguely worded, state laws on education such as the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's Stop Woke Act. At least 10 states have passed legislation increasing the parental power over library stock or limiting students' access. In place of spontaneous challenges to single titles come challenges to multiple titles, organised by campaign groups such as Mums for Liberty. The American Library Association says that 40% of attempts last year targeted 100 books or more. Not only schools, but now community libraries too are under scrutiny. The efforts are also increasingly punitive. Missouri Republicans this week voted to defund all the state public libraries after librarians challenged a bill that has removed more than 300 books and that threatens educators providing uh, sexually explicit material with imprisonment or a fine of up to $2,000. A library in Michigan was defunded last year. Another in Texas is under threat this week. These challenges are overwhelmingly from the right. 
And while liberal parents have sought to remove titles such as Adventures of Huckleberry Finn from mandatory reading lists over their approach to race, this time the demand from parents is not merely that their child should not have to read particular titles, but that no one's child should be able to unless they buy it privately. Pen America notes, it is the books that have long fought for a place on the shelf that are being targeted. Books by color, authors of colour, by LGBTQI plus authors, by women, books about racism, sexuality, gender, history. They include works by celebrated children's writers such as Judy Bloom, literary greats including Toni Morrison and Margaret Atwood, and even the comic picture book I Need a New Butt. Librarians are attacked as paedophiles over sex education titles or those depicting same-sex relationships. In part, this is a backlash against efforts to diversify reading matter in schools and libraries. The pandemic also gave parents greater insight into what their children are studying and fostered a parental rights movement rooted in opposition to mask mandates. The primary cost is to children denied appropriately selected books that could be life-affirming and life-changing, even perhaps life-saving. The chilling effect of challenges makes librarians and teachers second-guess their choices and cut book purchases. In two Florida counties, officials this year ordered teachers to cover up or remove classroom libraries entirely pending a review of the texts, reportedly leaving weeping children begging, please don't take my books. But parents, librarians and communities are waking up to the threat and are organising and educating to counter it. Books are the building blocks of civilization. They must be defended. So that's a nice strong argument and a strong article from The Guardian, which keeps a close eye on what's happening in the United States, similar to what the dogs do, promoting public education and hands off by political interference in, um, in school curricula. Let the teachers do their job. They're the experts. This week, we're taking a closer look at why three parents, Australia-wide, have chosen public schools for their kids. Hint, it's not just about the cost. And this article is from the ABC Everyday, originally written by uh, Grace Jennings Edquist, who writes, Enrolments at government schools are on the decline. While the number of Australian children attending private schools is growing, some parents choose them in the hopes they'll offer more tailored extracurricular options, but many parents still favour public education and their reasons extend beyond the cost factor. They talked to three parents from across the country about why they chose the government schools for their kids. Firstly, they, they spoke to Jessica Lowry from Melbourne's outer southwest suburbs, who, who is a midwife and her partner works in IT. They have two kids aged six and four, and both kids attend a local primary school in Melbourne's outer southwestern suburbs. The kids are at a local primary school. It's actually the primary school that I went to, and honestly, we couldn't be happier. In making our decision, we considered all of our options and went to open days for a variety of schools. We looked at private, public, we looked at Catholic. But basically, we were looking for a school on the smaller side. We were wanting to get a school where there weren't a huge amount of preps starting. We did consider Napland schools when choosing Napland scores when choosing a school. We didn't weigh them heavily, but we did consider it. It wasn't so much how the schools were in comparison to the rest of the state. It was more about how they were trending and any areas where there was a bit of deficit, 
We liked that the school was quite transparent about that and what they were going to do about it. We prioritised the kids' emotional well-being as well because we started prep in the middle of COVID lockdowns. So the biggest thing for the school in those difficult years was just emotional well-being. We got very lucky with zoning. To get into a school outside your zone is just not heard of these days for high school. We're considering literally moving house to get into the zoning for the public high school we want. And next, they spoke to Mark, who is in Sydney's Lower North Shore. Mark is a manager, has three kids in primary school with his wife, who is a credit manager. He went to a mix of public and private schools while his wife was publicly schooled. And he writes, one of our kids is autistic. Our vision is that our kid could be in a mainstream environment. We've really worked in partnership with the school to be inclusive for all kids in the community. We absolutely love the school. They have been incredible. I can't imagine that any private school system would have the scale or scope to do what the public school system is doing in terms of inclusivity of kids with disabilities. I don't think they could even take it on as part of their brief. Whereas being in the public system, it's an attitude of, it's our job to educate every child in the system, end of story. I came from private school culture, I suppose. So I've got a lot of friends who sent their kids or send their kids to private school. We tend to just not be judgmental about it. Everyone's got their own systems of belief and fair enough. My wife coming from Italy just never got into private school culture. That kind of implies that if you care about education, you'll send your kids to private schools, which I think is a myth to be debunked. I think there's inequality in your school being your community. It's not a contrived community. It's determined by a geographical boundary. We're just a community in this area and our kids go to school together in this area. Whereas with a private school, I guess you're attempting to contrive a community based on some other criteria. Our point of view is it's not better education, it's a different education. And the last person that the ABC spoke to was Megan Fox from Canberra's Southern Suburbs. Megan, who works in retail and her husband, who's in recruitment, have two kids aged 10 and 14. Both Megan and her husband went to public schools, although Megan switched to private school for the last few years of her schooling. And she tells us, one of the advantages we've seen compared to friends that have kids at private school is the distance and lack of access to your friends close by. One of the things we like is that both our kids walk to school because it's literally 100 metres to one school and 500 metres to the other. If they want to go hang out at a friend's house, they can just hop on a bike or a scooter and go. It's a kind of financial decision, but it was also our ability as parents to be engaged with the school. Being in the community, we not only had access to the school, but we would see other parents at the supermarket or the park. That sort of thing just made a difference to us. The thing I do see about private school is there are a lot more organised activity, things like weekend sport. I think potentially that does make it easier for parents. You don't have to go and find your own sporting teams. From the outside looking in at private schools, there also seems to be more discipline and more ability for the school to set their own boundaries, for example, around phone use in the classroom. But in the end, children only go to school for so long so they need to learn how to form their own boundaries themselves with support. And we're comfortable doing that in the public system. That's very interesting points that all of those parents had to say about the benefits of public schooling around Australia. And congratulations to those parents and all the parents that choose to send their kids to public school.
Well, there you are. State schools are great schools. The public system is always better than the private system, and it doesn't matter what anybody says. Uh, the dogs have known that for years and years, and we're very happy to repeat it every Saturday for you. But we've come to the end of our time on 3CR. We thank you for letting us into your life for this uh, period. And we remind you that our website is www.adogs.info. And from all of us here at The Dogs, it's bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.